Well, that's good news this morning. Good morning. My name is Brandon Hatch, and I'm the director of worship here at BPMC, and it is my privilege to be sharing uh, my heart with you this morning. Well, in the year uh, 1444, in the nation of France, one of the most famous phrases ever uttered by any human in all of history was spoken for the first time. You see, what was happening was King Charles VI had died, and King Charles VII was about to claim the throne. So they were having a funeral service for King Charles VI, and they lowered his body down into the burial vault. And as they did that, someone shouted from the crowd, the king is dead, long live the king, or if you can pardon my butchered French, le roi est mort, vive le roi, the king is dead, long live the king. Well, at first, I think part of why that phrase has become so popular is because it sounds like it's a contradiction, right? Because if the king is dead, how can the how can we say long live the king? But what, what's being said is, the king is dead, the old guy. He's dead. And long live the king, the new guy. So that's what's being said on surface level. But if we go a little deeper, what's being said is, the king is dead, but in some sort of lineage way, some sort of royal line, the king is still alive because we still have a king. Even though it's not Charles VI, it's Charles VII, we still have a king. Now, last week was Easter, and we put together uh, all these boxes, and we get the full picture of Jesus. And we, we celebrated his resurrection. So for Christians, I think that phrase has a different meaning. The king is dead, long live the king. The king is dead, yes. Jesus was crucified and went to the cross for my sins and for your sins. But long live the king. He did not stay dead. He is resurrected. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Praise God that Easter does not end on Sunday. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, I want to talk about this great good news that we just heard about in the video, the gospel. The greatest news humanity has ever heard. The greatest news, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done. It's the greatest news, and we need to share it with the world. And there are a whole bunch of really, really, really great sermons on why we need to do that. Today's not going to be one of them. <laughs> Not that <laughs> you could be laughing for two reasons. One, you could be laughing because you think I'm not going to talk about that, or you think today's not going to be really great. I'm not totally sure which one that was, but we'll go with it. Today, instead of focusing on why we need to share the gospel, I want to talk to you about how the Bible calls us to share the gospel. So if you would turn with me, uh, to page 807 in your Bibles. We're going to look at uh, the passage in 1 Corinthians first here. And then we're going to come back to that uh, Philippians passage. So if you want to turn there afterward and just leave it open, that could be a helpful thing. 
So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is uh, Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Starting uh, halfway through verse 1 there. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, God, for your word. Let's uh, pray together. Lord, we thank you so much that you are not a God who is distant, but you are near to each and every one of us. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear your word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would, you would just fill this place with your presence, that we would be made aware of the reality of you, of who you are and what you have done for us and what it calls us to do in response. We love you, Lord, in your name, amen. So uh, some of you uh, are hearing that passage and saying, I've read that a hundred times. Others of you are going, wait a second, that's in 1 Corinthians, that's in the Bible, that's kind of a weird, obscure little passage there. And, and others of you are thinking, okay, Brandon, I know what it is, but just so I know that you know what it is, could you just kind of catch me up to speed on what a Corinthian is? So I'm going to do that real quick and give you a little background on this. Wherever you're at in your knowledge of Scripture, here's one of the amazing things about our God. There's something for you in there. So this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He uh, had already gone on a missionary journey there. Most of these Corinthian believers came to know Jesus and know that good news we saw the video of, the gospel, because of Paul's ministry. So he loves this church, he knows this church, and now he's writing this letter from a distance back to this church to remind them of what he's taught them and to settle some disputes and divisions among the church. And in the introduction of that letter that we just read, he seems to say, hey, remember when I came and I taught you guys? Remember how I taught you? I was a bad public speaker. And he says it in different words, but essentially he says, I wasn't clever. I didn't have human wisdom. I wasn't eloquent. I wasn't a great public speaker. And for us, that's kind of a problem coming in 2018 because if we're planning a missions trip to Corinth, a city that's never heard the gospel, what we're going to do is we're going to rent a big screen, we're going to show a movie, and then we're going to get the best speaker, and we're going to have him keep it short but keep it simple and give the best sermon that he can give. The idea of intentionally being a bad public speaker to a city full of people who do not know Jesus is kind of a foreign concept. So when you encounter a problem in the Bible, one of the great things to do 
is to look at where this comes up elsewhere in the Bible. So we're going to look at some other places that, that uh, either confirm or deny uh, this kind of hypothesis that Paul was a bad speaker. Please don't chase me out of the church for saying that. Um, so 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. This is another letter Paul writes back to uh, the church. And you'll see this on the screen here. 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. Um, here's, here's what Paul says. He quotes the Corinthians and he says, For some say, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Ouch, right? I mean, this is kind of nasty mail from the people he was preaching to. And 2,000 years later or so, it is remembered in Holy Scripture. I mean, talk about a church that's in need of Pastor Appreciation Month. This is a guy who loves this church. He's getting beaten and stoned for this church. And he's writing them letters back, quoting their negative criticism of his speaking. So that's, that's one example. And then let's, uh, let's go to another one. If we look at the book of Acts, there are a few accounts of Paul preaching. And Acts is a fascinating thing because in the book of Acts, you get both examples. In Acts 17, Paul is speaking in Athens, and he does a really engaging, culturally relevant, concise message that seems to be a different Paul than unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. It's, it draws a crowd. But then you get the other side too, and this is in Acts 20. I'm going to read it to you. Acts chapter 20. And as I read this to you, I want you to just listen for these phrases. All right? Acts 20. Sometimes reading the Bible, before I read it to you, it's kind of helpful to get the Spark Notes version. Um, here's what happens in this story. Paul preaches... And he goes on so long and so unengagingly that he kills a guy because the guy falls asleep by a third story window, falls out, and is dead. Okay? And then there's a happy ending to it, but I think we focus on that happy ending and neglect the fact that Paul inadvertently killed a guy by preaching so long. So... Here, here is Acts 20, and listen for these phrases. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Now, we, we don't have this detail in the scripture, but I don't think Eutychus fell back asleep after that one. But Paul kept preaching. He kept going all the way until the morning. Now, I want to give a side note here. 
because I think these testify, at least in part, to the truthfulness of Scripture. Ancient literature historians, when they're looking at documents and they're trying to figure out if it's an authentic document or if it's a forgery, one of the things they look at is called the criteria of embarrassment. And the the idea is, if you're going to make up a story, you're probably not going to make up a story in which you don't look good. So, it's amazing as we look at the Bible, even all the way from Genesis to the Gospels, all the way through, the Bible says God is great and humans are kind of dumb sometimes. Whether it's the disciples not getting it when Jesus pretty clearly tells them multiple times what's about to happen and they just miss it, or whether it's the Corinthians telling Paul he's a lousy speaker, or whether it's the story in Acts. I mean, if you're making this up and you're the early church, Paul is the hero of the New Testament. If you're making this up, you change that story. You don't say it's because Paul was preaching too long. You say someone shoved Eutychus and he was too groggy to realize it. Or you don't use Eutychus's real name because this isn't that long after Eutychus. He's a young man in the story. Eutychus is probably still alive at the composition of the book of Acts. People could ask him, hey, is this true? Is this the real story about you? That's called criteria of embarrassment. It's not the end-all, be-all argument that the Bible is true, but it is one of the things that testifies to that truthfulness. So here's what we've established. We've established that Paul has it in him to be a really good speaker, but Paul also has it in him to talk so long that he can put people people to sleep and they can fall out of windows. And the question that I have today that I hope we can answer is why doesn't he always give the Athens speech of concise, engaging, entertaining? And specifically, when he goes to the Corinthians, why does he come across as such a poor public speaker Why doesn't he use human wisdom? Why doesn't he speak with clever words? Why isn't he engaging? Well, I'd like to suggest that it is because Paul is aware of the prevailing philosophy in the city of Corinth. You see, in Corinth, the most popular philosophy of the day was called Sophism. S-O-P-H-I-S-M. Sophism. That's vocab word number one today. And there were two schools of this, because some of these uh, philosophers, they believed that what was really important wasn't what you say, it's, it's really the logic of the argument. It doesn't matter how you convey it, it just has to be true. Those were not the people who were popular at Corinth. The people who were popular at Corinth were in the second school. It was based on entertainment, winning arguments, engaging the emotion of a crowd, And it really didn't matter if your arguments checked out. What really mattered was that you beat the other speechmaker, that you got more people to clap for you than this other person. And Paul knows this. And because Paul knows this, he says, that's a game I'm not going to play. I'm going to go, and I know what you want me to be. You want me to be a celebrity but I'm going to be a servant. 
Paul knows the Corinthians want to be able to say, you see that guy, that guy who is demolishing these other philosophers in the public square as they're talking? That's our man. He sends our church letters. But Paul doesn't play that game. Paul says, I'm not going to be that because I know that the gospel doesn't look like that and even more so, the core of the Christian faith that I'm inviting you into, the core of it is the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul writes about the person of Jesus Christ in Philippians 2, which will be on the slides, but you can also uh, turn there. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. This is, this is who Paul believes is the core of the Christian faith. Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, what Paul knows is that the core of the Christian faith is the king of the universe humbling himself to come and become human while remaining fully God. Think about it, though. The only being in the universe that was not going to eventually face death entered into our world and went to an excruciating death for us. Crucifixion was excruciating painfully, but it was excruciating socially. It was intended to be the most embarrassing form of execution. That's why Roman government reserved it for uh, people who challenged the authority of Roman rule. But, but think about this. If Paul knows that Christ Jesus is the core of the faith, if he goes in and speaks really well, how he says that is conveying something about the gospel. And that's why he goes in, not as a celebrity, but as a servant. Isn't it interesting, though, that in that passage, we see how God works. He exalts the humble, and he opposes the proud. He exalts the humble, and he opposes the proud. So Christ, who was more exalted than anyone, humbled himself, more than anyone, and because of that, he's given the name that is above every name, the ultimate exaltation. Isn't it interesting that when we talk about Good Friday, in that story, the Roman government, in executing Jesus, they crown him with a crown of thorns, and they hang up a sign that says, the king of the Jews, they had no idea what they were doing. Think about this humility and exaltation. As Christ was humbled in the crucifixion, his ultimate victory over death and sin was being made possible. 
They thought this was a crucifixion, but this was a coronation. We were crowning Jesus king at the cross. His victory is through losing. And Paul sees that and he says, we should act likewise. Well, I told you that there is something here for us no matter where you're at today. Uh, So I want to talk about that. This idea that, that Paul's ministry is to be in the shape of the cross and our lives are to be in the shape of the cross is your vocab word number two today. It's called cruciformity. Okay, and what cruciformity means is taking the shape of the cross. And if you remember one thing from today, it's this. The cross isn't just our message as Christians. The cross is the shape of our lives. This became very real for me uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, the week prior to Easter. We had a great event here at church called Walk with Jesus. And it was for families, and they would go through station and station and station, walking through the major events of the last week of Jesus' life. So, I was assigned to the Last Supper. So we had a a place set in, the kids had table set in, and they were there. And I got to tell them about the meal, I got to tell them about the symbolism going on there, and I got to tell them about what happens next. But before I got to what happens next in the story, I, uh, I was starting to lose some of the kids, so we played a game. Now, I don't know if you're like me in church, but right now is about the time in the sermon when sometimes I start to trail off. So we're going to play a game. You up for it? Come on, we're playing a game. There's like five of you up for it, but we're going to play anyway. So, so this game's called Which One's the King? And I played it with the kids, and they did a great job with it. But uh, here we go. I'm going to show you a picture, and you're going to tell me which one's the king. Here's picture number one. Which one's the king? Left. We got left. Any takers for right? (laughs) Okay, we got a couple. Okay. Well, that's the guy on the left. Uh, That's the king. And then in this picture, which one's the king? Left. Okay, that's correct. It's on the left. Which one's the king in this one? Man, they're always on the left. It's like when you're taking a multiple choice test and you notice every single answer is C except one of them. You probably got it wrong. Yeah. Now this picture, which one's the king? Yeah, the guy on the left again. But here's, here's the idea. This picture I can't get over after seeing that. And neither could the kids because they looked at this and they said, well, I know... I know the guy in the white, that's probably Jesus, but, but wait a second. In all these other pictures, the guy who's the king is the one seated. And the one who's not the king is the one who's on their knees. But Jesus redefines what it means to be king. He surrenders his rights, he surrenders his power, and he gets on his knees and he washes the disciples' feet. If that doesn't blow you away, let this sink in. On Good Friday, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he washed the feet of Judas, who he knew had betrayed him, who he knew was directly responsible for the excruciating death he was about to face. And he washes his feet. You know what that's called? 
That's called not getting what you deserve and getting what you don't deserve. As Christians, we call that grace. And that unbelievable grace we're called to share with every person that we meet. Jesus says, go and do likewise. So let me ask you a question this morning. How are you doing? How are you doing with this? When you go out to eat, how are you doing at washing the feet of your waiter or waitress? Because it's, it's not about getting on your knees and actually washing the feet. It's having that posture towards every person you meet. How are you doing with this? Because washing your feet back then was a really gross thing. And if you ask the kids that walk with Jesus, they'd tell you it's still a gross thing. We did it, and I've, I've never seen so many little kids about to like, like their gag reflexes were going left and right, just like washing clean feet with a wet wipe. It was, it was kind of funny, but, but the reality is serving is not glamorous. And if it is, you might not be serving properly. That's the posture we're supposed to have. So how are you doing with this? Parents, how are you doing at serving your kids? Kids, how are you doing at serving your parents? Husbands, how are you doing? Does that look like your marriage? Wives, does that look like your marriage? Are you serving one another? Are you striving to wash the feet of every person you interact with? Christ calls us to do just that. Here's a real practical way. We talk about this a lot with the worship team. And here's a real practical way that that picture uh, crashes into real life. I tell our worship team, if you're here and you're scheduled to sing or play on the worship team, and in between services you go to the restroom and you notice, now you got to bear with me because this this is highly unlikely that this happens because we have an amazing cleaner here at church. But you go to the bathroom and you notice there's a dirty toilet. If you think that's a great job for someone else, or you think I can just walk out of here and act like I didn't even see that, or you think that's not how I'm serving today, then you need to check your heart. Because I can speak for myself in this, that if I'm not willing to clean a toilet when no one's looking at this church, then I am absolutely not qualified to lead this church in worship. That is what it means to follow the servant king. That's what it means to be a servant and not a celebrity. That is what the church capital C church needs because there's a whole bunch of lowercase c churches that are being torn apart because they're chasing after some sort of celebrity. We serve a king who gave up all celebrity to wash our feet. So we need to do this. We need to do this because the lives of the people around us depend on this. You, anyone who's tried to share the gospel with someone who's probably not interested knows this. But words can only go so far. Words are important and words are necessary. 
but no one's going to listen to your words until they see your love in action. No one's going to listen to your words until they see your love in action. And if we expect the gospel to break through in the lives of our neighbors and our friends and our family who doesn't know Jesus, we need to look like that. We need to be serving them in love. We need to do this. But if you're honest and if I'm honest, we need to admit that we can't do this, right? If we try to do this on our own, we fail in two different ways. One, you're going to get burned out really quickly because you, you can only keep yourself going that way for so long. And two, and this is the much more dangerous one that you can run into, if you're trying to serve people in love, on your own, you'll run into the, a place where you're saying that you're serving Jesus, but you're just trying to make yourself look good and feel good. Ouch. That hurts here. <laughs> that, gets, that gets to the core of this problem. True humility is not serving for recognition at all? And, and this is a good question to ask yourself when you're serving, to know if you're serving for yourself or you're serving for King Jesus, okay? Here it is. If no one ever knew this happened, if no one ever knew that I did this, and I never got a thank you, I never got any recognition, I never got any attaboys or pats on the back or even a compliment on a job well done, would I still do this? If the answer to that question is yes, that's true humility. If the answer to that question is maybe or no, then we need God even more and his grace is sufficient. But the reality is if we're going to do this, we need to be going in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be praying for God's presence to empower us to do these things. I have one, one uh, closing challenge for you. And if you've been at church for very long, you know that when, when the preacher man says closing, that means there's only 20 minutes left. But here's, here's my closing challenge for you. This week, I pray that you take that posture. I pray that you strive to serve the people around you in love the way that Christ has served us with perfect love. And as you do it, I want you to give it back to God. How do you give it back to God? This is how you give it back to God. When you're, when you're in the grocery line and you decide to pay for the groceries of the person in front of you because you can see they're struggling, you don't have to say it out loud. You can say it in your head. All you got to say is, long live the king. When you turn your cell phone off so you can give your kid undivided attention, you don't have to say it out loud. Long live the king. When you go into that restroom and you see there's paper towels all over the counter, and no one would know if you just walked out. You pick them up and throw them away. Long live the king.
the world around us doesn't come into this place. They don't hear the songs that we sing and they don't, they don't see this great artwork that we made. So how are they going to know that we serve a risen Savior who is alive today? This is how. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. The king is alive. Long live the king. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much that although you had everything, you emptied yourself and set it all aside so that you could come as a servant to us, Lord. We don't deserve it. We never will deserve it. But we thank you that you give us your grace freely. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to the ways you're calling us to wash the feet of the people around us. We ask that you would, you would help us to test our hearts so that we would know if we're serving you or if we are deceiving ourselves and just trying to make ourselves look good. Lord, you are so good to us. You are powerful. You are mighty. And we ask that you would empower us as we go to live lives of service for your gospel. In your name, amen. Would you stand and be sent out with this blessing. As you go, go in love that you would serve the world around you with the love of Christ. Go forth and live lives in the shape of the cross. Amen. Have a great week.